0: Welcome back to the Ten Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Charles Kessler. Charles is the Dengler-Deichma Distinguished Professor of Government at Claremont Mechanic College of Government uh, in California. He's, he's a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, and he's the editor of their fantastic quarterly, The Claremont Review of Books, which I read from cover to cover whenever a copy lands in my mailbox. He's speaking with me today, however, to talk about his powerful new book, Crisis of the Two Constitutions, The Rise, Decline, and Recovery of American Greatness. It's published by Encounter, and it's on sale now. So Charles, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Brian. It's a great pleasure to be here, uh, editor
1: to editor. Yes. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm a great admirer of City Journal, the, the wonderful... Quarterly, you edit, so we're actually quarterly to quarterly, as it were.
0: Yes, yes, that's right. Well, uh, I'd love to get into uh, this book, which I, I'm, you know, just finishing up today. I, I think it's a, a really terrific volume. It's a kind of uh, uh, wonderful overview of American political history, uh, of of some of the key issues that we're facing in the country in the twenty first century, um, and it's written in this kind of clear and luminous prose. So. So I I really recommend it to all of our listeners. So let me start off with just a basic question. You know, your book describes an America that's divided between two different visions of the nation and its past and future, and two very different approaches to understanding the Constitution. On one side is the Founder's Constitution, as you call it, and then on the other, what has come to be called the Living Constitution. What are the essential things to grasp about these two conceptions and why does it matter? Uh,
1: Let me begin with the second question. Why does it matter? Um, It seems to me uh, we need to understand the roots of our present discontents. You know, America is incredibly divided politically um, in ways that are just not normal for our politics. Um, And the question is why? how are we to understand the enormous uh, um, emotional and psychological and intellectual and political differences between liberals and conservatives in America today? It's not, just, it's not like it was in the Eisenhower era. It's not, it's not like it was uh, in most of American political history, where the two parties are sort of Tweedledum and Tweedledee, and uh, you know, as you um, approach election day, they look more and more like each other. Uh, now it's the opposite. As the parties approach the election, they look uh, uh, increasingly uh, uh, opposed to each other. And the whole tradition of a loyal opposition where the two parties uh, disagree on policy but share the same constitution uh, is really uh, fading. Uh, Our new tradition is resistance with a capital R, where whichever party is in looks at the other one really as having one power somehow illegitimately and therefore is to be opposed um, root and branch. Uh, And this is uh, what needs to be explained. And it seems to me the the uh, awful causes of this have been working their way through American politics for quite a long time. Time And that the the radical nature of the disagreement is such that the um, best metaphor with which to talk about it is really two constitutions. We have um, two radically different visions of what constitutes America that are in competition with, with each other. And, you know, if you have one nation with two constitutions, that's not a good situation to be in. And so as I describe it, this is a process of estrangement and, um, and mutual antipathy that's been going on really for more than 100 years. It began in the progressive era. Um, it uh, accelerated and, uh, and added layers, if you will, in the New Deal. Um, but in the 1960s, it really got going. And then um, that slacked a little, but in the 1990s, it renewed itself. And that has brought us more or less to where we are um, today, I think. Um, And the two contenders, these two constitutions, um, the first one, as as you mentioned, I call the Founders Constitution, meaning not just the written constitution of 1787, but also as amended, and as supplemented by the Declaration of Independence and the general, you might say, principles of Republican government that were worked out in the revolution and in the lead up to the revolution. That's one constitution. The other is uh, the Progressives Constitution, which they gave the name, uh, starting at least with Woodrow Wilson, they called it the Living Constitution. And that term in itself is a a sort of giveaway because what they're implying is that this is the living constitution, the other is a dead constitution, or at least it it is on life support. And the only thing that keeps it going are transfusions from the one, the healthy constitution, the liberal's constitution, the one that is putatively at least alive and thriving.
0: Uh, a major figure in your book, you devote a fascinating chapter to to him, is the political scientist Harry Jaffa. Uh, for our listeners who might be unfamiliar with Jaffa, could you explain who he was um, and how his study of the founding and of Abraham Lincoln's completion, in a sense, of the founding is something we should pay attention to as we think about the future of the American project, uh, about this clash between the living constitution and the Founder's Constitution.
1: Yes, well, Harry Jaffa was um, uh, a professor at Claremont Men's College and Claremont Graduate University for most of his career. Uh, he, he was a student of Leo Strauss, the great um, German émigré who uh, who helped to revive the study, the serious study of political philosophy in the 20th century. Jaffa was his earliest student or at least one of his Earlier students. Um, and he went on to write uh, mostly about J- America uh, and Jaffa became one of the greatest scholars of Lincoln um, in, uh, in, in the 20th century, um, attacking Lincoln's uh, thought from the point of view, or I should say interpreting Lincoln's thought uh, from the point of view of uh, the serious study of political philosophy uh, itself. And so he read Lincoln very closely and very deeply. And uh, he was a political scientist, not a historian per se. But I think most historians of the Civil War uh, would uh, agree with my estimation that Jaffa really was, uh, you know, uh, there was no one who read Lincoln's speeches as wisely as uh, Jaffa did. And he's interesting because he didn't go to the study of the founding in the beginning of his career. He went into the founding as a result of his interest in Abraham Lincoln. So he started with America in Medias race, you know, in, in the 1850s. And then in order to understand what Lincoln was up to, he had to go back to the founding and figure out where Lincoln was deriving his principles and how he was applying them to the slavery fight in, and the fight for the union uh, in the 1850s and 1860s. Um, and Jaffa was a friend of mine. He was a colleague of mine out here uh, in Claremont uh, and he was a fellow conservative. Um, but uh, what is most interesting, I think, to your listeners uh, and to uh, my readers, I think, is that he himself uh, changed his mind on the nature of the American founding. In his first great book on Lincoln, which was called Crisis of the House Divided, uh, and came out in uh, 1959, so quite a long time ago now, uh, Crisis of the House Divided was a study of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And it succeeded in bringing them alive in a way in which many books don't. Um, And in particular, he interpreted Lincoln as, as you put it, uh, completing the founding and, and even transcending the founding because uh, uh, he Lincoln, as Jaffa then interpreted him, um, regarded Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence as sort of uh, Lockean figures, meaning followers, as it were, of John Locke, um, for whom slavery was wrong, but, but it was not, um, uh, it was not, um, um comprehensively wrong and slavery could be justified insofar as it was necessary for your own self-preservation uh, or even perhaps uh, uh, comfort um, And he thought Lincoln added to this a, a moral richness and depth which Jefferson lacked and so he re- he regarded and said in so many words that uh, that Lincoln had, gone beyond the founding. He had absorbed all that it had taught, but he had transcended it um, morally and uh, intellectually. Uh, But then 40 years later, Jaffa wrote a second great book on Abraham Lincoln called uh, A New Birth of Freedom. And in that book, he changed his mind a little uh, on the crucial question of whether... Lincoln was improving on the founding, uh, as he had argued, or as he argued in the subsequent book, uh, in fact, was faithfully interpreting it, that there was a depth and a moral greatness to the idea of equality and liberty in the Declaration of Independence that Jaffa himself had missed uh, 40 years before, but Lincoln had not. And so in Jaffa himself, you have this sort of intra-American and intra-conservative fight nicely illustrated at a very high intellectual level over whether the founding was in fact uh, noble or great in its own uh, right or, or not.
0: Fascinating, um, that was very, very useful uh, I think for, for listeners just to understand Jaffa's importance, and uh, I encourage them not only to read your book, but to, to seek out these two uh, volumes of, of Jaffa. Um, one of the most impressive chapters in your book uh, talks about the three waves of liberalism that shaped the American 20th century, and you, you alluded to this uh, uh, a short time ago. Three presidents really represent, respectively, uh, one of the three waves. So first you had Woodrow Wilson, the early 20th century progressive, then uh, Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, and then Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society and the accompanying civil rights era. These waves uh, sort of have mixed together, but each was also distinct. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could just give a brief overview of what each of these waves have contributed to uh, the liberal mind if if we want to call it that in the 21st century and how does uh, Barack obama and now biden uh how do they fit into that that framework do their presidencies represent new liberal waves uh fourth or fifth wave um, and and is the wokism phenomenon something that is growing out of this tradition uh an evolution of it or is it something really new that's a lot i realize but do you have any easier questions? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really one of the key chapters of your book. Because, well, uh, thank you. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, so, um, I mean, what's so odd about our present situation, I think, is that in a way we are in, uh, in a revolution, in the, in the midst of a kind of political revolution. Um, but it doesn't feel like a revolution. Because if you think of revolutions, you think of something like the French Revolution or its successors you know, where there's a, an, an immense social upheaval and, and lots of violence, uh, and you have a kind of, uh, you know, bloody civil war uh, accompanying the political change going on. Um, that isn't what's happened in America. Instead, we've had a rolling revolution th- that's been going on for almost 100 years and, goes and, and advanced, as you say, in these three waves. So let me let let me briefly characterize what each wave was about. So the first wave, the progressive wave, uh, of which, as you say, Wilson is a kind of uh, is the obvious uh, avatar, um, represented um, a critique of the Constitution um, as outmoded. So you know, Woodrow Wilson was the first president to criticized the American constitution uh, for being uh, anachronistic. It was a great 18th century constitution, he said in effect, but this is the 20th century. And we have new problems undreamed of by the founders, uh, which this constitution is not only designed not to alleviate, but in fact makes worse. Uh, And what we need to do, essentially, is transfer the authority morally and eventually politically and legally from that outmoded constitution to a new up-to-date constitution, which he called the living constitution. And he explained this, oddly enough, in Darwinian terms. Um, He said that, you know, Charles Darwin is the master scientist of our age. Meaning the late 19th century and the 20th century. Um, change is a great concept that he introduced, Darwin introduced into the study of biology, but we hadn't imported that notion adequately into our politics. And instead of a, of a constitution which used to, Americans used to boast of its um, separation of powers, its you know, federalism, bicameralism, all of these famous institutional devices that the federalist papers extol uh, that is the those devices that 18th century system of checks and balances was exactly what wilson thought was most outmoded in the constitution and what we needed to do was open it up to progress and we needed a constitution that like an organism in in in, in a darwinian universe um, could respond to new challenges in the environment by changing, by mutating, um, by growing new parts of the federal government and testing them to see whether they help the, the uh, American society survive better um, than without them. And that th- this notion of uh, an evolving set of human rights and an evolving constitution to uh, implement those rights that we owe to Woodrow Wilson, um, but for many generations, I have to say, uh, his successors um, uh, told us a, a lullaby about the new constitution, that it was not in fact an alternative to the original, but rather merely an, uh, a looser, more liberal interpretation of it, that the two constitutions had the same goals, but they were just about getting to those goals in in different ways. And for, you know, until the 1960s, basically, um, many liberals talked that way and many conservatives uh, accepted that account of liberalism. But I think the truth was um, that that was always a kind of um, noble lie. There was a little bit of truth to it. It wasn't a complete lie, but but it was meant to distract attention from the, the radical uh, character of the, of, the new con- of the proposed new constitution. It was meant to disguise that. And it became a less and less uh, persuasive disguise, uh, you know, during the 1960s and, uh, and, after, and afterwards. So that was, we got a new constitution from the first wave. In the second wave, we got a new Bill of Rights, Um, FDR spoke famously in his 1944 uh, annual message of of a second Bill of Rights. And even though he never actually formally proposed those as amendments and they were not voted on, you know, and added to the Constitution in the the traditional way, they in effect were incorporated into our politics. And what are these new kinds of rights? They are very familiar to us now because uh, they really are almost at the heart of our politics. A right to a job, um, a right to education, a right to health care, a right to a vacation from the job, um, all sorts of socioeconomic rights, which um, previously would have been thought to be good things. I mean, it's a good thing for people to have decent housing. It's a good thing for people to receive good education. And, and you ought to aim your public policy at getting these goods, but nobody would have said that these were rights in the same s- strong sense that we have a, a right to religious liberty, a right to freedom of speech, a right to, <clears throat> to the pursuit of happiness, um, and so forth. Um, and, then, and out of that, we get the entitlement state, essentially the welfare state. And then the third uh, wave, uh, the great society and all of the great society's enemies to its left, the, the so-called new left, um, that essentially was about adding a third bill of rights, you could call it, um, to our constitutional system. We have a new living constitution with a new a whole set of new welfare rights, and the 60s began the addition of uh, lifestyle rights or identity rights. Um beginning, of course, with one that is still very uh, important, a sort of right to sexual satisfaction and to identify yourself sexually however you wish um, and to seek satisfaction uh, almost however you wish. and But following from that many other aspects of racial and ethnic um, self-identification uh, and, and as well, social identification um, which are now the uh, you know the focus of so much of our multicultural identity politics today and all counting each of those waves together you have in in essence the new constitution that modern liberalism is trying to um, uh, foist on the American people uh, and in effect, refound America in this new image.
0: Well, that that's how you would uh, interpret really the, um, the true terms of Obama and Biden certainly seems to be heading in the same direction, um, with talk of, you know, big government plans economically, uh, already an emphasis on, on identity politics, um, it's it's as if they're trying to bring all of these different waves together and in, into, um, you know, a new America. Yes, I, I think that's uh,
1: right, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, there are many Democrats who are not on board for this whole um, agenda. Um, but increasingly, they, I think, lack influence in their party. And uh, and 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 Joe Biden is, in a way, a good example of someone who, uh who is certainly a fellow traveler or, or more, uh, but he is by no means an alternative to this a- agenda. I mean, he may want to proceed a little bit more slowly and perhaps with a little more general consent or a few more Republican votes, um, but he has no alternative to it and he has no argument against it. Uh, and that's where we are. Um, you know, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who was an impeccable liberal in in, in, the, uh, you know, in mid-century, Amer- 20th century America, distinguished between two phases of liberalism, which I think are useful to bear in mind. He talked about quantitative liberalism, which was basically what the New Deal was about, trying to get a, uh, uh, a minimum standard of living, uh, a kind of fl- welfare floor under every American family uh, or household. And then he said there was another, the newest phase, uh, which he was, uh, which was just beginning in the sixties, qualitative liberalism. Uh, qualitative liberalism is about um, the your inside, not your outside. It's about living a better, a higher quality, uh, a more moral life. And uh, unfortunately, our politics is increasingly about your your what's inside you, your thoughts. You know your your evaluations, your your morality, and um, and and it is really felt by liberals that government has a role in in shaping your religious expression, your moral uh, uh, identity, and in compelling others to acknowledge certain uh, people's or groups' identities as well.
0: I'd like to shift to the other side of the political aisle, to the conservative movement, uh, which, as you note in the book, um, in America, really arose in opposition to one degree or another to these three waves. And here you really do stake out a position that sees opposition, though, as as not sufficient. Uh, You look at the Reagan presidency sympathetically, for example, but you also Uh, Discuss the philosophical limits of Reaganism. And similarly, you know, you close the book with a a measured assessment, I think, of the Trump phenomenon and presidency. Uh, You know, it's it's hard to see Trump as a leader uh, who was all that concerned about the founder's constitution, even though the administration was very successful in appointing constitutionalist judges to the federal judiciary. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a bit about maybe the limits of Reaganism um, you know, where did Reagan fall short and uh, what is your view, you know, some, some summation view of the Trump presidency and the future of the conservative movement, really, post-Trump? Uh, okay, thanks. That's a very good set of questions.
1: Uh, I, I think Reagan is greatly understudied by modern conservatives. Um, you know, he was, a, in most respects, an extremely successful president uh, who, had, who not only sort of reshaped electoral coalitions, voting coalitions, but changed the public policy discussion of the country. Um, I mean, he set up the defeat of the Soviet Union uh, in the Cold War and he revitalized the economy in such a way that it's, uh, you know, it's new, it's second wind lasted really uh, a generation or more. Um, he, he really, uh, if you looked at the American economy in the late 1970s, you would never have expected that it would have reached the heights that it did in 2000 uh, or let's say even under President Trump more recently. Um, all of that is true and yet, um, by his own admission in the farewell address, which is one of those understudied speeches of his that I was referring to, uh, he admitted that uh, he had failed in in, in in, a way in the biggest challenge of all, in the most important task that the Reagan revolution had set for itself. Um, he accepted in the farewell address this term, the Reagan revolution. He did so modestly, it was not his term. It was applied to his political, uh, his presidency, essentially. Um, and he gratefully accepted it. But he said that he, he had meant for the the Reagan revolution, in effect, to be a kind of second American revolution, to, to launch and to ground a new patriotism in the country. Because all of his successes in public policy um, would not last unless the foundations of that good public policy in a sort of patriotic opinion, a love of the country among people in general uh, had been cemented. And he admitted that there was a new spirit of patriotism in the 1980s, but he had failed to institutionalize it. And as he put it, you know, he had grown up in a different country, in a different America than um, America in the 1980s. Um, a- and he expressed it this way, when he was a child, now this was, you know, early in the twentieth century, when he was a child. Um, you could learn about American history, about American patriotism, everywhere. Your parents would tell you about it. Um, you would learn it at the schoolhouse. You'd learn it on the playgrounds. You would learn it in, you know, the motion picture theaters, uh, in uh, on the radio. All of popular culture um, uh, joined in singing the praises of uh America and its principles. But he said now in the 1980s that's no longer the case. You, you know, popular culture has in effect turned against that kind of patriotic uh, consciousness and uh and universities have turned against it. And where do you go to learn it? That's the problem. And he said it's even American parents, young parents in America today don't know what to teach their children about America. They don't think That it's right to teach their children what Reagan called an unambivalent love of America, and that he that he worried about that was the greatest um, cloud in an otherwise sunny sky. uh, You know, in the otherwise sunny skies that Reagan tended to see as the kind of optimist that he was uh, or had become at that point. And in a way, you can say that um, his failure as a conservative, the failure of the Reagan Revolution to become a a sort of second American revolution, uh, lay in the fact that he was a sort of consensus uh, uh, conservative. Um, He believed in in a certain kind of populism, really, that the people had a virtue. They they still understood and revered uh, the real America. So all you had to do was uh, bring the people into power, make their views effective. And he took that theory as far as you could take it and got as much success out of it as you could. But as he, he himself admitted, uh, in effect, in the in the farewell address, if the people are not sure of their values, if the people are not sure what to think about America, uh, he didn't have an answer for that problem because he was trying to em- empower the people and their values. Uh, and that's what that was the key to his kind of conservatism. It was a sort of Mayflower Compact sort of conservatism, um, a document he talked about, interestingly, several times. Um, But the problem was the the people were not sure of their values anymore. So how are you going to finesse that problem? Um, And in an odd way, you know, the Trump um, phenomenon ended in the 1776 commission. Um, which, which I was proud to be a a, a member of that fleeting commission, yes.
0: um,
1: and and the the task that uh, President Trump set this commission was to you know describe what patriotic civic education in America ought to be and to suggest how we might be able to uh, get there again. So uh, even as Reagan's, two terms ended um, in an admission of, of this failure to ignite and to institutionalize a new patriotism. Uh, Trump's one term ended in the same way, really, with a, a, you know, a, a kind of um, desperate attempt to uh, change the opinions of the people, to educate the opinions of the people. Uh, but of course, uh, on his first day in office, President, President Biden abolished the 1776 Commission, as well as many other good things.
0: Uh, you know, what, what is your view, Charles, uh, going forward of the conservative movement uh, after the Trump presidency? Um, you know, is, it, is there the possibility out there of some kind of renewed emphasis on the principles of the founding, um, or is, is that becoming a kind of utopian hope?
1: I don't think it's utopian. Um, I think we, uh, we concede too much to the left's uh, claims of historical inevitability um, if we let them get inside our head and disarm ourselves. Uh, look, this is, a, this is still a, 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 a fight. It's a, and it's a, it's a you know, deep and important uh, and almost unavoidable political uh, cold civil war, to use that term. Uh, that America finds itself in now. And I don't think there's an easy way out. Um, And, and, you know, you, there are various scenarios for how one might find an exit ramp. But basically, I think we've got to sort of fight our way uh, through this. I don't think there is going to be a convenient uh, exit ramp. Uh, And that means it's really a fight for the um, minds and the the, uh, souls in a way of uh, of Americans, what they think about their country. Um, and in the wave of statue uh, de- de- you know, defilements and defacements in 2020, we saw just how radical these uh, contemporary revolutionaries or would be revolutionaries on the left are. They're not just pulling down statues of Confederate generals uh, or of even of slaveholding founders, they're pulling they're, they're pulling down statues of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, you know, abolitionist um, uh, figures, um, and of uh, of people who, in, who who you would think they are in favor of, as uh, as uh, you know, uh, men who brought greater liberty, undeniably, um, to the American to all uh, of the American people. Uh, But they are. They're precisely about we don't know yet who will go up on the plinth that (laughs) from which Washington statue, as it were, has been toppled. But but that is the sort of classic revolutionary uh, move to topple the heroes of the old regime in order to enshrine new heroes for a um, a new regime. Conservatism has to grapple with that. Um, And it has to recognize that that is not a question you can leave to the end of your administration, which is in a way a sort of mistake that Reagan and Trump made. It really is the central question. What is the idea of justice um, that defines America? Is this, as the left now openly says, a systemically racist country, Um, a systemically unjust country, or is the system essentially, uh, one of justice. Uh, Does the system represent human equality, liberty, and dignity, or does it represent the antithesis of all those things? And you can't really compromise on that debate, and and conservatives have got to face that um, challenge. I mean, in a way, that question, which is, you could call it cultural, but it's really political and cultural, uh, is at the center of, of uh, all of the more specific, you know, uh, foreign and domestic policies that conservatives are going to uh, be working on
0: in, in the future. Well, that's a very, very um, powerful summation, in a way, of the importance of your book. And, uh, you know, I, I, again, encourage listeners to check out Charles Kessler's new book. It's called Crisis of the Two Constitutions. Uh, there's a lot more in it that we don't have time to go into in this podcast, but you get a sense of its uh, uh, its themes and its importance. You can find it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And you should also read uh, Charles's work at the, the Claremont Review of Books and other publications where he, he also writes. If you haven't already, please uh, follow us on Twitter at City Journal and on Instagram at City Journal underscore M-I. And uh, as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please give us a ratings on iTunes. Charles, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Brian. Uh, It was great fun, and I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.